Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to the eighth episode of the Knife Journal podcast. I'm with my partner here, uh, Kyle Versteg, and uh, we are on a wonderful Tuesday morning in the fall. And uh, welcome aboard with us today. Yeah. So uh, I'm. Uh, you you just had a wedding. I'm. Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm kind of my my butt's a little bit dragging today. We had a. We had a pretty, uh, my youngest son got married over the weekend and, uh, there was lots of, uh, uh, dancing and cigar smoking and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, some adult libations, um, and more dancing and, oh boy. <laughs> and so the cleanup on Sunday and, and of course it, uh, it rained, uh, we were, it was an outside wedding and it, uh, it, it, Missed it a little bit during the ceremony, mm-hmm. and shortly after the after the ceremony ended, and everybody got moved into the very very large tent that we rented. On. We had a beautiful spot. Um, it's it's an old estate that on Lake Charlevoix, just gorgeous place, and uh, had a big tent on the lawn. And um, so we after we everybody retreated into the tent and started having hors d'oeuvres and wine and. And it started. It started raining, eh, you know, not real hard, but hard enough. Huh. And by I think nine o'clock, it was t- like torrentially downpouring. I mean, really bad. But it didn't dampen anybody's spirits. We were, everybody was uh, just having a great time, and it lasted until like one thirty in the morning. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and lots of dancing. So you ought to see this old guy cut a rug. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> it like, was actually. You're, you're doing like the Lindy and the Jitterbug and all those. Oh little, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. The twist. Oh yeah. The all twist. And 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 it was actually fun and uh, it was a fairly big wedding and uh, and of course all of the all of the men in the wedding basically I watched them grow up mm-hmm. you know so that was kind of fun uh, they uh, grew up into great guys that's good yeah that yep. does so always that was, happen so, <laughs> <laughs> so my um um i'm almost i'm two-thirds the way done getting my my progeny married off <laughs> and uh <laughs> one more to go and she's engaged to a wonderful guy so you know it'll it, it'll soon be happening so oh, i got one nice. more to go and i'm i'm gonna retire after that i'm gonna tell them all to support me and there you go <laughs> <laughs> Well, so how, I, was your, how was your weekend? Well, you know, I just, uh, it was, it's actually been a couple, it's been a while since we put one of these out, but, um, I went to Ethan Becker's, um, over not this last weekend, but the weekend before and did all kinds of crazy stuff and had a good time and, um, recorded actually quite a bit of material for our podcast. We'll get to that in just a minute. But, uh, one of the neat things I saw there you're gonna laugh. You remember uh, Ken Schwartz? Oh yeah, the, the the master sharpener with his .0009 micron sharpening ability. Well, yep. one of the guys there had this uh, sharpening system. It's like a handheld sharpening system, and it's like it was like slicker than hell. And he's mm-hmm. like using it and all this. And I'm like, wow, that's really that's really quite neat. You know, he's sharpening, sharpening, and then he whips out these, like, little solutions, and he's like, and this one is 0.01 micron. 
And I'm like, shut the hell up. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> and I looked at it, and it, and Ken Schwartz's name was on the bottle. So apparently That's awesome. he's he's got like he he and his brother have this like crazy sharpening system, and it's uh it's all American made, and it's like 130 bucks or something. Um, I've got so, a, so I guess I don't recall seeing that one. Um, what what does it look like? It's you you like hold it in your hand. Um, there's like a handle on it, and then it's got um, a little you know the typical controlled angle sharpening deal, and then a little vice thing that holds your knife in place. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and, I, and and instead of stones, it has uh, well, it, ha- um, it has stones, but then when you get down to the strapping part, it's got like these kangaroo. Um, straps that are like all, you know, like magical and stuff, and uh, <laughs> and then you, you put this like crazy point um, oh one polish stuff on there, and and uh, you know the you the knife you look at the knife funny and you get cut. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it gives your knife an attitude. So I I saw that and I it was so slick and I'm like, geez, I wonder if Ken Schwartz has anything to do with this. And he whips out this solution, and it's like his name is on the bottle. I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> so I wow. thought that was funny. And wow. since our last uh, podcast, I have uh, three little geek out knives, that two yeah. of which you've never heard heard me talk about before. One of which you know. So I'll go in in uh, ascending order of coolness here. Here's this one. That's a uh, that look. That looks like a uh, K bar, uh, yep. Bob Dozier yep. lockback. Yep, yep, that's a nice knife. I have yeah, one of those. Those are actually really quite nice. Yeah, it's their folding hunter. Yep. And what I did is I bought two of them: one pink for my wife and one orange handled for me. And we uh, the pink one came with this um, kind of satin finish, and I wanted that, so we swapped all the parts over. And uh, now I've got uh, kind of a semi-custom thirty-dollar Bob Dozier folder. <laughs> so that's that's number those one. Are, those are actually a lot. That's a lot of knife for the money. Oh, it's it's incredible. You know, the the, the only thing I would say is, um, you know, I'd I'd be willing to pay a lot more for this if it was if it was made in the United States because it's a fantastic design, and it it really does um, do quite the. It's put together well. Everything works on it. It's it's pretty. It's functional, um, but it's it and it's made in Taiwan, which you know I I don't care, but it I'd pay more for it if it was made in America. So sure you would. Yeah. Well, I think Bob I think Bob Dozier actually uh, I think he made that knife, if I'm not mistaken. I could uh-huh. be wrong, but I think that he made some of those a while back, but. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I got to talking to um, somebody that's uh, a designer that we know. Um, I can't say who, but this particular person was talking about um, releasing a folder based on one of um, his designs, and he said that, like, in order to get it done and tooled up, like, the only way they could make it and hit the price point was to do it in Taiwan or do it right. in you know, one of those, the other countries or so, you know, I understand the, the need to hit like the $30 price point, but in my mind, like the, it's worth more than $30, even as it is even made in Taiwan. So like, 
we're getting some sort of a crazy subsidy on this. And what I worry is that that, that subsidy is at the cost of um, people having jobs in the U.S., you know, because right. there's some sort of a and, big trade deficit and that's or always, whatever. And that's always the issue because um, when, you have it, when you have the quality going up it, the way it does in those third world countries and and in uh, um, Taiwan and you end up with uh, eventually the prices catch get caught up uh, it, it happened in Japan it was years ago when people looked at Japanese knives and they were like you know they're made in Japan you know they're not very well they're not very good now they're probably I would say the country by country the stuff that comes out of Japan is is every bit as good, if oh, not yeah. somewhat better than what we're producing here. I know that's probably going to get me some mail, but uh, but the prices are 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 if not more expensive. Yeah, uh, the ja- yeah. Japanese knives now are are more expensive than I think than American made knives on a whole. Um, yeah. So I, you know, it's one of those. It becomes one of those trade offs that we start looking for. Uh, the the $30 price point knives and you know eventually the company the, the countries that are making them get to be you know good enough cutlery uh, manufacturers that the, the prices end up going up yeah because like, they start they start playing in the fancier steels and they start playing in the you know a little bit better knife a uh, little bit better designs yeah so well and, that, and it's the, kind of one of those things that it's the craftsmanship of this this K bar thing and the fit and finish, like you know, this is this is not uh, your typical you know made in Taiwan knife. I mean, it mm-hmm. it feels every bit as sturdy and every bit as good and has all of the fit and finish of anything that's going to be made in the United States. And it's for what? thirty bucks. And again, I I the fit and finish of it is good enough and it's a good enough product that I'd pay twice or three times that to have it made in the United States. But I must be like in the teeniest, tiniest minority of people willing to do that. Right. Right. But so that's, that's, I think that's just a decision that the company makes that they want to stay in that price range rather than bump up. You Mm -hmm. know, maybe the profit margin on that is considerably higher than the one that's made in the United States for three times as much. Hmm. That costs three times as much, you know, the, the profit margin, it must be, uh, considerably larger. Yeah. Otherwise, they wouldn't model. do it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because that's when, it, you know, um, when you look at when you look at uh, knives from our perspective, we're looking at what kind of value we get for our dollars. Yeah. On the manufacturing side, you know, they don't look at it the same way. You know, they look at it like, you know, how much money are we going to make off of this, as opposed to that. Mm-hmm. You know, if we do if we do it here. And we make uh, X number of dollars, and we sell it for ninety dollars, and we sell X number of units. And if we do it over there, we make four times X on the profit margin, and we sell three times X on the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty hard to figure. It's you know, it's obvious that you're going to make way more money in doing the what short you're doing. Term. Short term exactly. you are because eventually there's not going to be anybody with any money in the United States to be able to buy your cheap Chinese made crap. Yeah, well, you know, that's that, that's the thing. If you don't have if you don't have people, this is a consumer based economy, and if you don't have people with disposable income 
meaning they have jobs, you know, they're not on food stamps, they have a little bit of money left over at the end of the month, then it doesn't matter where you make your knife. It, you're still nobody's going to be able to buy it. Well, here, you know? here's the and here's the kicker. If we would follow the rules that our forefathers set up for us, we nobody could afford to, to import stuff into our country. Well, and, and even even just um, follow the rules that the other countries set for for our products going into their country. You know, right. just even it out a little bit, and and right. it, it would solve itself. You know, right? But, I mean, it's it's one of those things that that is a. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the grand solution is. I. I don't even know who the hell to vote for anymore, Democrats or Republicans, because oh, it seems the like they're both. Yeah. They're, they're all in the same way. I mean, it seems like we need to have, uh, we, we need to really start getting regular people to start running and on the com- and the common sense party, maybe. Maybe that's what we should start as a common <laughs> yeah. sense party. Well, and then the, then the problem is, is like any any normal person runs and, and you're immediately betrayed by the press as an idiot. Doesn't matter. Yeah. What you've done with your life doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter what intelligence and what ability you've demonstrated in your life. If you're not from uh, a big, huge family with a long political history, and you haven't gone to the Ivy League schools and been in the Skull and Bones Club and all of this stuff, you're an idiot. You know, yeah. and it doesn't matter that the people that we're electing demonstrate idiocy over and over and over again. You know, they just will not accept someone that's from outside of that circle going into and having control over the reins of power. You yeah, know? isn't that crazy? Yeah, I know, and you're screwed. And and l- let's say you somehow do get elected. The entire time you're in office, people are going to be working against you, and you're not going to get anything done. Right. You know, you're going to be painted as a kook, as somebody who won't work with anyone, and you're just, you just forget it, basically. So and look, think, and look what we've gotten to now. We've gotten to a point in time when they just they just passed through Congress that they're going to pay all the federal employees for their back pay because mm-hmm. they didn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, during the the past week or ten days or whatever it is, they didn't they haven't worked, but we're still going to pay them. Right. And and now that people are starting to say, well, damn it, you better get back, get your asses back to work. Yeah. Well, well and even though paid, you, even though our government is shut down, eighty three percent of it is still functioning. <laughs> you yeah. know, how well, is that a shutdown? Seventeen. Really, it's really kind of. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the the numbers, it's kind of interesting because you're seeing things like eighty eighty five percent of the employees are non essential. Yeah. So, some some wild number like that. Eighty five percent of the employees are non essential, and eighty three of the percent of the government is still operating. Yeah. What the hell does that tell you? Right. It, you know, so <laughs> it's a, does it tell you that's what seventeen percent of the of the employees are providing eighty three percent of the government functions. Well, actually, eighty three percent of the government is still running. So they they shut it down, and eighty three percent is still functioning. So in theory, we don't have government operating. We're not funding it, but eighty three percent of it is still going anyway. Yeah. You know, so that that's what. It, it just baffles me. And then they, they do the thing where, you know, they they try to shut down, like, open-air monuments, you know. Right. Or they, right. Obama it's tried just, to shut down the ocean, for Christ's sakes. You're shutting down disgusting. the ocean? Who the hell are you? <laughs> like, who the hell do you think you are? I can't go in the ocean? 
remember what you said, 83% of the government is still functioning. Yeah. But what I, what I just said, I lay that over the top of that is 85% of the employees in the government are non-essential and they were laid off. They were, Oh my gosh. 80. So 80. So what you had was like 15% of the government employees were doing 83% of the keeping 83% of the government operating. (laughs) Oh geez. So, so what does that mean? You have 17% of the government that is being run by non-essential personnel. Which is which is eighty five percent of the employees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what the hell? What? Who? Who? Really? Yeah. Well, at any rate, we better we better move on at the risk of becoming too political. So here's geek out knife number two, and I know you'll recognize this. Oh. Yeah, nice. baby, the lefty beast Damascus. That is nice. Yeah. And it's got, if now you what, look... Now, uh, whose Damascus is that? I don't know. I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> looks good. Yeah, and then uh, look at the pivot pin in there. It's got, like, it's almost like a little mosaic, the pivot pin. You see that? Oh, yeah, it's got the, the three little things on it. Yeah, it's it's almost like a mosaic. Yeah, that's very cool. So the only thing I need to do is I need to bring it to our one friend and have him mill down the uh, presentation side a little bit like so mine. that yeah so that you can <laughs> so get the lock open <laughs> yeah and i think i'm going to have them um look at the way the um face the lock face meets the back of the blade there you know you yeah. know what's interesting about that just that little bit that he took off on mine is such a huge difference it's not even funny yeah i'm going to have him tune it the next time i'm up that way which yep. we we got to start planning another adventure Listen, up there um I told you about what but our other friend wants to go on a uh, wants to do the snowmobile trip, mm-hmm. and um, so that that's going to be kind of fun. Yeah, and I I've, I'll and, have uh, to stop by Bark River for the afternoon. See if well, I can, I'm uh, thinking that I'm thinking that maybe we could end it there. Oh yeah, maybe end the trip there after you know. Um, yeah, figure out after a way like to do a week long a, a week long trip across the UP. By snowmobile, yeah. You know, maybe we stop at the uh, in Bark River and stay at the whatever that little motel is that you stayed at. The oh yeah, bag, my my uh, thirty dollar motel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was twenty five dollar night flea bag place. Yeah, thirty um, thirty dollars with uh, the hotel tax and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, at least you can get a cold shower. Yeah. And uh, uh, oh, and it was cold. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> And it you know smelled what, like opt, dog crap. Personally, there. personally, I'm going to opt for the $50 room because okay. I know you get a hot shower at the $50 room. Yeah, and, and your room doesn't smell like poop. And especially, especially when it's that cold, um, we're going to, uh, uh, you know, we're going to want to have a, a nice hot shower after being in the, across the, the UP. Yeah, tenting it for, you know, five, four, seven, five days, whatever it takes us to get there. Yeah. Um, and then finish it up there, and then and then you can drive. Because he's going to take. It took him about a a good half a day of screwing around, getting that right. Yeah, you know. I'll see if so, I can give it to him, and then um, the other thing I want to do is I want to, if I can find a, a grinder that's not used, <laughs> I've got some monkey business to do. <laughs> and I, the other thing I need to do is I need to figure out exactly. Sit down with Mike and figure out exactly what 
Burger King I need to get. Right. Um, because uh, I'm, I think I'm going to buy one of those at the end of the year. Actually, you know what? I got a uh, um, a friend of ours, Tracy Mickley. I don't know if you met him or not. Mm-mm. He was at. Well, no, you weren't at that grind in. He 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 will be at the next grind in for sure. Okay. He has got. He just sent me plans for a no weld grinder that you can make. Oh, cool! Somebody like you, I will send you the link over. And somebody like you could make this. Um, actually, he's got like a total kit form deal. I mean, it's a real nice. You can slack belt grind on it. You can, you know, he's and he sells all the parts at uh, usaknifemaker.com. Okay. Um, good. He, he a good company. Got everything you can imagine uh, yeah. as far as knife making stuff I that buy you a might lot need of stuff from there. Yep. So. Well, he has a he has a no weld grinder that. Um, I'm surprised Mike hasn't tried to put one together yet, except for the fact that it takes a little bit to put it together. But but you can put together. I'm trying to think of the numbers that he was tossing around. Seems to me it was like like 1,200 bucks. You can put together a a grinder that to re, to replace it with one of the big names would be like 3,500 bucks. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, so you're gonna you, you save quite a bit of money doing that. Mm-hmm. And I know with your Gator arms. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I can't. Yeah, they reach have a hard my, time reaching down into your wallet. You yeah, know? my little yeah, T Rex arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you uh, um, would, would might be interested in that. I, yeah. I almost want to say that he sells a pre cut kit, also, where everything's pre cut, pre drilled, pre tapped, because uh-huh. um, it's made with tube stock. The whole thing's made with tube stock that kind of fits together with with uh, um, with tapped. Uh, you know, you, you screw. yeah. Hold, hold it together with tap screws and stuff. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll look cool. into it and see. Um, I mean, it'd be it'd be worth looking at, anyways. Yeah. the The other thing would be um, that one grinder that Mike has with the real small wheel, like the ability to to swap the wheels out so you can have a real small grinding surface, and then you right. know, I kind of want one that's with the, a good platen. That's the, and all I think that's that. a Wilton he's got. I think mm-hmm. it's a Wilton. Hmm. I think that's what that is a Wilton, but I but the issue with that is I think that unit you can't small you can't uh, slack belt with that. Yeah. And I think and I think with uh, the one that Tracy's got, I think you can put a small wheel on that and you can slack belt with it. Yeah, I'll have to look at that because it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty versatile. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be happy with it. Knife number three, and this is the coolest one. And you have to tell me what it is just by looking at that. That's all you get to see. That is a um, oh, it's a a, a Raider. Bowie. Yeah, yeah. So the V forty four Raider mm-hmm. Bowie. Yeah, this, where'd you get that from? This weekend? Uh, no, I got it from eBay. <laughs> this oh is no, a, shit, those are cool. Yeah, this is a Collins. Um, yeah, Collins number eighteen. Um, yeah. from World War Two. They, mm-hmm. they, they didn't make very many of these, and nope. now I have one. Um, but yep, those are very cool. There's a there's a reason be, that I bought this. It's uh-huh. not it's not because I need it. Okay. Uh, it's because uh, I'm supposed to make a few of these. Oh, only, cool. Only, I don't. I'm probably not going to do the guard because this is a stick tang, and they mm-hmm. um, and then it goes into the uh, into this like bakelite handle here, and uh, then they've got this crazy brass guard. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try to make it full tang with uh, with a little bit more uh, modern handle on it. 
Like the, you this, know, the you handle know what you is can like, do? Yeah, go ahead. You can you know what you can do with that, and you can still put a brass guard on there. Is what you instead of making a little stick tang, just make it a very very wide stick tang. But just all it's got to be is a little bit narrower than the where yeah, the Ricasso the, is. The mitered. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I I could I could try that. Um, then the problem is um, making the handle because I make it slab my carta. Yeah, but then. But but it has to it has to it has to have that spot routed out through the mm-hmm. middle of it, and then mm-hmm. and then I have to figure out how to make the guard. So I think what I'll do is until I figure out those things, I'm going to make one of these that that has a a, a little bit of a built in um, self guard self guard, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to put up the other thing that this is missing. Um, the original one is it's missing a little sharpening notch. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put a uh, an incorporated guard, not a real <clears throat> aggressive one, uh, and then I'm going to get rid of this this back part of the handle that bangs into your pinky, because the handle yeah. is extremely comfortable. But I could see with any kind of a chopping task, you're gonna you're gonna run into this. Uh, right. Your and, pinky's and remember, just gonna get beat up. Remember that was made in the 40s, uh-huh. and men's hands were not as big as they are now. Yeah, they a, were, lot, a lot of guys. I mean, they're yeah. physically were bigger. Than we were in 1944. Yeah, an average soldier was what five seven hundred and forty pounds or something in yep. World War Two. Yeah. So and and it was made for it was kind of funny because it was made for young soldiers. Yeah. And if you go to um, any army base or marine base, and you see who they're recruiting, there's not very many humongous guys. Yeah. They're mostly they're mostly slender. High school graduates, you know. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, and I'm not saying that in a in a bad way, but um, you know, when a lot of guys try to find, I mean, it, they don't make a lot of double X um, pants. No, 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 no. <laughs> For camouflage pants. So no, yeah. usually, when you see somebody in a double X pants, they're 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 usually not from the military. It's an they're usually aftermarket stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's well, the officer's version. <laughs> they, yeah, they're in the, they're, they they end up with uh, in the fat man pro or the fat boy program. Yeah, which is kind of funny. Well, uh, yeah, but the first the first time I, um, I I had a friend named Archie, and he was when I was a sur- general surgery resident, he was a orthopedic surgery resident, and uh, he he was a ranger. Mm-hmm. And he was he was not only shorter than me, but his frame was much smaller than mine. And I'm oh, yeah. I'm like average height, average frame, and he was like a real small guy. Mm-hmm. But he was a real serious ranger. He was one of the guys that they sent to uh, Somalia to try to get the um, the pilots out of there. He wasn't one of the sniper guys. He was a marine part of a troop going in mm-hmm. to clean house and and all of that. Or he was a ranger, part of a troop going in to clean house and try to get those guys out of there. So, mm-hmm. and and you know, basically the guys that I've seen that are, um, you know, like rangers and are the the high high speed combat guys, they're all pretty small. Yeah, I I used to know there was a there was a uh, um, there was a number like an the average height of a of an A team operator. Was something like five nine, yeah. and one hundred and seven and one hundred and seventy pounds, or something like yeah, that. It, that. Was, it yeah, it was it was considerably smaller than what you would expect. Yeah, 
everybody thinks of these guys as being humongous and and uh, uh, but hmm. but it's but it's pretty cool. Hang on a second, Mike. I got a break for a second. Okay. Gotta... Anyway, we're we're back after a short break. Uh, the other thing I did at uh, Ethan's over the weekend is I recorded two separate hour-long interviews with him and. Uh, they, one of them will go into this podcast here. Uh, Jim hasn't heard it, so there might be all kinds of surprises in there, and he might get in trouble and ask me to take it down. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, I doubt um, it. And then uh, I also interviewed our friend uh, Chance Sanders about his urban survival stuff. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, Chance is an interesting fellow. One of the topics that we... Um, frequently discuss on here is what kinds of knives do the real, you know, combat soldiers use. And I interviewed uh, Corey Murphy, and he was a, uh, he's the real deal. He was a saw gunner, and he did the, in this latest Iraq war, he did the uh, assault on Baghdad, so the first part, and then he did the Fallujah thing. And so I got him to talk a little bit about the knives that he carried and knives that he saw and things. So that'll be in, what, episode 9? Mm-hmm. And then uh, episode 10 will be uh, the other uh, hour-long interview I did with Ethan Becker. And uh, we got into some real kind of theoretical uh, discussions about knife design and what works and, and uh, what's attractive, what sells, those kinds of things. So it's really interesting stuff. But, uh, yeah, so we're pretty much at the point where we can, uh, we can start with, uh, Ethan's first interview. Any, uh, final thoughts here? Uh, no, like I said, I'm very dull today. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still recovering, so. Well, so then, uh, we should tell people to send their questions to, uh, podcast oh, you know at knifejournal.com. Hang on a second. Oh, you got a question. I think I, I think I had a, uh, I think I had a question that I did not. I might have forwarded it to you, but I don't remember if I did or not. Another great episode. Thanks for answering my questions. I did purchase the essay folder from KnifeWorks. Uh, first, let me tell you the customer service at KnifeWorks is great, very friendly, and um, you purchased the essay folder along with a ZT350. Oh, cool. Uh, because they were having a sale price you couldn't beat. Um, he said, to be honest, the SA knife is what can be expected for a $30 knife. Huh. And so um, he says, he says I will take it out to the field and do some minor tasks, and it's okay. When it breaks, I will not buy another. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. <laughs> well. um, he says, I echo your comment and wish it was made here and or with a little better price point that would be related to the quality. Mm-hmm. So, and then he thanks us again. So it was kind of more a comment than a question. Well, now I'm, I'm hearing that there's there's actually two, two folders. One, well, there's three. There's the one made by Ontario. Um, mm-hmm. That's a Taiwan job, um, and, but, and it's got the steel uh, um, uh, spacers in it, you know. Liner liners, yeah, steel liners. Um, so and that's that, that one. Doesn't that that has a micart? Those have micart scales too, don't they? Yeah, it's like this. It's the molded plastic. Uh, it's like the. Um, oh 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 oh! I thought the one from Ontario had mold had uh, uh, 
my car to scales and a, and a steel and steel liners, it, it but might I could be, be mistaken. Ten, but um, okay. I think it is injection molded. Um, okay, so, so when, there's it, there's when, that one, and then then there's one. I think it might be this thirty dollar Taiwan one that has something to do with Blue Ridge, but I'm not sure. And then I've heard, at least I've seen on um, the, the SE forums that there's a there's an, another folder that's going to be made by Rowan. You know, so I think I think there's more than one answer here, and maybe we're getting confused about which is which. Um, so don't don't take my word for any of this. <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm completely out of the loop on any of this stuff going on over there. Um, but uh, well, why don't we? Uh, um, Listen to this interview, and uh, we'll catch back up with you next time. Yep, and uh, send any questions you have to uh, podcast at knifejournal.com. Uh, head on over to the forums we at, at Knife Journal, and uh, we've got uh, you know some sections on the podcast. If you have a question, you don't want to send an email, just you just join go up, on there. Join and, up and yeah, and, uh, you, and we'll we're pretty follow good us about, on Facebook. Yeah, pretty good about um, answering uh, questions on the forums. I check them at least every other day. Um, and we got a moderator on there. Jonathan Eldridge is is now uh, keeping the spam off of there. <laughs> yeah, that's always a good thing. Yeah, that's always a good thing. And and now that this wedding's done, I'll be able to focus a little a little more on. You know, I don't know if any. If many people have been through this, but planning a wedding and executing a wedding is is one of the one of the most stressful things. I, I don't. I'm thinking that delivering a baby was less stressful than than this. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a big to do. And and it's and you want it to go off just right, and you know, so you you get you you become so focused on it that you that a lot of other stuff slides and. And if you were part of the sliding point, I apologize. No, to, not at to all. In advance, but, but I, I, um, I just worry that I'm whipping you too hard about the podcast stuff. No, 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 no. no <laughs> but we, no, no, you've no. got to do it. No, no. So. You know what? And it's and it's fun because we, I had a, a great uh, compliment from my my oldest boy. He went to uh, South Carolina mm-hmm. uh, two two or three weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I guess it was, because he had to listen to he listened to five podcast so he listened to six over six hours anyway while he was driving and everybody else was asleep and he said you know he said what was so cool about it he said it reminded me so much of sitting at the kitchen table doing something working on something but just kind of listening to what the conversation was at the kitchen table yeah while we were and he said he said made me feel so much at home it wasn't even funny he said i really really truly enjoyed that he said it was like listening to a phone conversation for for uh or having a phone conversation with you he said it was really moving yeah and i i I just (laughs) i was i brought a little tear to my eye (laughs) a tear to your eye no way (laughs) maybe blood (laughs) no i'm just teasing but yeah but it was but it was actually kind of cool that he that he said that you know in my uh, and then the one that just got married was listening to it while he was working the other day. He said he had his headphones in and he was he was listening to him. He, he just was. He said he was just laughing. He said it was. He said he just got such a kick out of it. It wasn't even funny. So 
yeah. think we're, you know, when, when, when the two kids that, and you'll, you, your kids are too young for this yet, but eventually they will grow up and for about 15 years they're going to hate your guts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not looking forward and to during that. that. During that period of time, you think that, what the heck did I do? Yeah. Well, after that period is over, they start coming back down and, and you start realizing that you actually did do a good job. Yeah. When you're raising them, so I mean that's the, it's like that's the point now where we're at where it's like oh yeah this is now this is really cool because I got these kids that are you know that we we busted a hump on and and uh, uh, got them got them straightened around and got them raised properly and and uh, even during the rough times when you think that you're you're failing miserably <laughs> yeah. and then they and then they just like bloom and then you're all set yep. you know so. Anyway, my bits of wisdom. Um, let's break now to the to the uh, to the interview. Yep. And okay. uh, the next two podcasts, we you won't hear us talking together. I'll just do a brief introduction of who's who, and then uh, those will come out fairly rapidly because they're already done. I just need to record do an the intro. introductions. So you're gonna you're gonna get three pretty much back to back to back podcasts here very shortly. And then we'll be back uh, sometime live uh, next Maybe. week. I gotta yeah, go. I gotta week. go to uh, San Diego. So, San Diego. Yeah, I gotta go to a meeting out there. If I don't go, I'll get in trouble. Oh, that's cool though. Yeah. Taking your wife and kids. Wife. <laughs> we have never been to San Diego, and I pretty much I avoid California. Um, cause San I, Diego's pretty. You'll yeah. like it. I gotta go look down up the, the water. I gotta look up the knife laws out there. Make sure I can I will, carry uh, something. Um, when we get off, I will. Uh, I got a buddy of mine that spends a lot of time out there, and I'll get a list of great restaurants. He's in the restaurant business. Oh, cool! And yeah. I'll, I'll get a. I'll get a uh, some great restaurant recommendations for you. All right. All right. Okay. Well, so until next time, uh, you have your parting words. Yeah. Keep your friends sharp. Keep your knives sharp and your friends sharper. All right, <laughs> and we'll oh, catch you I next time. Why do I keep screwing that up? <laughs> uh, it's 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 hard to remember. Yeah, it's say. a tough it's a tough saying. Yeah. Anyways, until next time, talk to you soon. Yep. So this is a another kind of remote uh, version of the podcast. I'm here on Ethan Becker's porch in the uh, Tennessee mountains, south and east of Knoxville, about an hour and fifteen minutes or so. And uh, we're sitting on his porch, and we'll be out here for a little bit. I can see the mosquitoes are already coming after me. <laughs> this has been um, this has been a year for skeeters. Yeah. So uh, I don't know where to start really. Oh, okay. <laughs> because there's so much to talk about. Um, I guess uh, one of the things that I would say, uh, just just as an introduction to people who don't know. Ethan Becker and I won't I probably won't be probably won't do a very good job of the introduction because there's so much to cover that I don't I don't really even know where to start but I guess the the basic thing is right now um, you're uh, a big-time knife designer for K-Bar and you've done some a lot a lot a lot of other collaborations but right now kind of your main focus is designing for for K bar. Yeah, and I would say that I'm trying to be a big time make uh, <laughs> designer. 
Well, I'd say you're there. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, that's a that's a work in progress. And then um, I just I just kind of want to go over a, a little history of how you got to this point. Okay. Um, because you 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 have done so many different things, and and you have uh, you've been successful in a lot of different areas. And and one that I would point to is uh, the climbing gear. And for for the people at home, those noises you're hearing are some wind chimes uh, out here. We we are outside, and uh, you can ignore that if you want. <laughs> but the kind of the fascinating thing is every little rock that I turn over, I find something new that you've been into at one point or the other. And and so there's up in the shop, you've got some climbing gear hanging. Yes. Yes. And. You you invented something for climbing that is kind of still in use today. Well, I didn't exactly invent it. I made the first really useful ver- version of it. Okay. And you're talking about the figure eight descender. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy named Fisher in England who came up with the first one, as far as I know. And he made them in his garage out of cast brass. They were homebrew. Uh-huh. And um, being brass, they weighed a lot, and um, I never actually saw one of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, Danny Morehouse at Clog Equipment came up with um, a very large and not terribly versatile version. And um, I saw at Black's when I was living in Paris one made out of welded wire. Okay. And it was really great for inspecting the interior of laid rope, gold line, because as you went down, it would go <laughs> and would just open the rope. Oh, boy. And um, which tended to get you to think about the rope and how it was made up of all those little itty-bitty tiny threads and how maybe it wasn't quite as wonderful a thing as uh, came as advertised. Mm-hmm. But I have a very good imagination, and I have a very high, low fear, fear threshold. So okay. Um, but I I looked at the two, and I said there is a really really good tool living in here somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I took the compactness of the blacks one, and then made sure it would pass two ropes, mm-hmm. um, and two carabiners through the lower hole. And bingo, um, I had a really big success on my hands. Uh, we sold those um, all over, the, and they're still being sold all over the world today. Hmm. And uh, uh, ski rescue people issued them for years, and I don't know what they're using now. But it was a, it was a big-time success. <clears throat> so how did you... How did you get into uh, making knives? Well, um, I'm not sure when whether I was a knife nut before I was a gun nut or I was a gun nut before I was a knife nut. Mm-hmm. But I was allowed to have edged things before I was allowed to have things that went bang. Right. So um, my seventh birthday, I received um, a true temper hatchet. Okay. Uh, and uh, very few things in my neighborhood 
were safe. <laughs> and um, and it was a and my brother had um, an original, I guess, Gerber White Hunter, designed by Pete Gerber. And it was a big cast. I had a big cast aluminum handle, which really was unlike the later White Hunter. That was kind of slab sided, but this had a round, rounded um, grip area okay. that fit your hand really well. And I was only allowed to use it occasionally. Hmm. And Gerber also at the time had a knife called a Pixie. Mm -hmm. And it was a little, maybe three inch bladed um, knife. And again, with a cast aluminum handle, and I believe that was D2 steel. That okay. he used. And um, my mom bought a set of the steak knives, which were basically pixies with much longer handles. Okay. And uh, she put them in the dishwasher one too many times at a time when uh, dishwashing stuff was extremely caustic <laughs> and ate the hell out of them. Okay. So she bought a new set and gave me the old set. <laughs> and they didn't look like... He-Man knives, they looked like steak knives to me. So immediately I, I got the hacksaw and the files and started to make a mine. Okay. And um, I really screwed them up, which, of course, did not deter me one bit. <laughs> so um, later on I bought uh, kind of to proof of, do proof of concept stuff, so to speak. I bought a bunch of old hickory knives, and by that time I had a Dremel, and I was really dangerous then. Yeah. So I started working those over, and this and that, and one thing and another. And and I've always been fascinated with edged uh, edged things, mm -hmm. and it doesn't make any difference whether it's a a scalpel or a a, um, uh, a machete or an axe or anything and, and anything in between and it is man's probably third oldest tool after the stout stick yeah. and the rock <laughs> um, and all it is is a broken rock uh, brought up to date yeah um, and um, so I've had literally a love affair with knives since I was seven years old. To give you an idea, when I was about 13, my parents thought that every well-rounded child should learn how to play the damn piano. <laughs> well, they actually got me to sit at the piano and pretend to play for three weeks. <laughs> So that I could get a tomahawk that I saw the ad for in a in an ad uh, in the back of a men's magazine, yeah. or True or Argosy or one of the other old misogynist uh, rags that I used to love when I was a kid. But anyway, it, it's um, uh, then I got but yes, I was about 18 or 19 years old, and I bought a a pair of kukri knives from a man named Adrian Van Dyke, who was from Marietta, Ohio, and a, I found out later a noted collector of edged stuff. And um, 
I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Huh. Uh, even though the steel sucked, uh, the handles didn't fit me worth a damn, and uh, the, the sheaths just were abysmal. <laughs> Especially if you get a wooden and leather sheath like that that's 30, 40 years old, um, they aren't good anymore. Yeah. If they were good when they started out, they ain't good anymore. So <clears throat> I sent both knives um, to um, Vietnam with friends of mine. One guy lost his blade because it was a stick tang, and uh, in the heat and humidity, it melted the horn glue oh. that held the tang in. And he said he can still see it spinning in the air over the river. Oh, jeez. Um, and catching the light just before it went kaploosh. And um, uh, and my other friend made sure that the knife stayed there because it was needed more than he needed to bring it home. And uh, they came back with the same complaints. The handles didn't fit um, fit big hands. Um, the steel was uh, at best okay. And the shades were horrible. But my friend Bob was very, very adamant about how good the blade was. So about that, uh, during the time, shortly thereafter, I guess, I got a case a case marked, but probably K-Bar designed and made um, it was called a jungle survival machete, I think. And it was issued uh, to the Army Air Forces um, and was used in seat pack survival kits. So like life rafts? Yeah, yeah. Uh, would, would be the thing you dragged into your life raft with you. Okay. But you sat on the damn thing. And it um, uh, must have been extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> was padded. Um, you opened it up, and it had the biggest fishing lures I'd ever seen at the time in there. And I kept thinking, you know, if you caught a fish that would attract, would be attracted to this, it would probably eat you and the life raft. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, uh, I took that thing out, and I used it and used it and used it and used it. It had an extremely comfortable handle, which is what I used as the basis for the large Becker handle years later. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was 1095 steel, um, probably the CB uh, variant, uh, which was a 10.7, what is it, um, uh, was the old Sharon steel. Great, great steel, great knife. And I used it for everything. I used it for yard work. It always went to the woods with me. I used it to split wood, to baton, to chop trees down. I used it as a little short machete. Mm-hmm. It was a mar. It is a marvelous tool. I still have it. I was playing with it today. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's and it's still it's ni- since 1942 or whenever it was first issued, 42 or 43. Hey, it it works just just fine. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, the original patent drawings uh, have K bar on them. Huh. Which is kind of kind of fun. Yeah. And. Um, <clears throat> There's a reason why I guess I felt at home when I came uh, came to have my association with K-Bar. 
So I took that handle um, and designed a kind of a quasi kukri with it, about the same length as that case knife, mm-hmm. about, um, about nine inches long. And that was my first knife design, which was the Meshacks. And um, people liked it. And um, I was sold it as a kind of a uh, safety hatchet because uh, if you hit a, if you miss with a little three inches of cutting area, three or four inches of cutting area on a on a on a hatchet, and you hit the handle, the thing will glance. Yeah. And start hunting body parts. <laughs> and if they're your body parts, this is not a good thing. No. <laughs> so, um, but that sharp handle will catch anyway. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, and it's it's a, there's a fair amount of compact power there, and I've always been fascinated with compact power, mm-hmm. whether it's small tractors, um, small bulldozers, um, whatever. I like to see a lot of power in a small pa- portable package, and that really started me in the in the in the knife business, and um, I kept seeing knives that I liked admired and I would see the things that after using them for a while that I thought needed to be improved hmm. um, the Campanion the BK2 which uh, has been the, the single most popular knife I've ever designed um, started out uh, when I got a uh, British MOD4 uh, knife okay and I looked at those and catalogs and stuff for years, and I thought, wow, that's, yeah, 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 that's the knife, that's the knife, that's the knife. And I got it, and it was uh, horrible. Huh. Um, edge geometry uh, was more suited to uh, masonry work. Um, it was differentially heat-treated, so when I tried to uh, improve the edge geometry, I ran into a lot of very soft steel. And the handle really wasn't that comfortable either. Mm-hmm. So um, I took the pieces of that that I liked and some of the aesthetic pieces I used. Uh, uh, Loveless's drop point is probably the uh, probably one of the most single um, successful design uh, uh, design uh, details that you can possibly find in modern cutlery. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and um, to say that I borrowed it from Mr. Loveless, um, uh, I hate to use the word theft, but um, uh, borrow is perhaps a little bit too mild. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I mean, I'm not alone. A ton of other people did that too. But I had a Loveless Schrade knife at that time that I thought was really, really nice. And... Um, uh, and that's pretty much where the BK2 came from. And I just kept taking note of things that I really liked. Mm-hmm. And um, usually my biggest problem with a knife that somebody else makes is the handle or um, the edge geometry. I guess the other thing that makes me a little crazy about a lot of knives is how they're balanced. They'll still cut if they have the right blade geometry. Mm-hmm. But 
how they feel in the hand, may or, you may regard that as an aesthetic thing more than a utility thing, unless you're a fencer or somebody who absolutely demands it. Mm-hmm. But if a knife doesn't have a pretty decent balance to me, it's just a club with a sharp edge. When you say, just uh, just for some clarification, um, balance, like what is it when you pick up a knife that you're looking for? Is it like a gestalt type thing where you pick it up and you just kind of know, well, this feels good? Well, it's partly that. Yeah. Um, you can quantify it to a certain degree. Uh, I want something, by and large, that has a very slight bias toward the tip mm-hmm. in weight. And um, and if if anything, I want more toward the tip than I do toward the heel of the of the heel of the knife. Mm-hmm. But I want something that just barely uh, one of the best balanced uh, blades I've ever had in my hand was a a um, a, a, a Scottish broadsword. It had, what, a 24, 26-inch long blade, and it felt like I could do surgery at the tip. And that's, uh, but but I also knew instinctively that if I gave it a good flick, I could flick somebody's head right off of their body with no problem at all. Hmm. Um, And... Um, and I have no, I mean, when I had that in my hand, it was, I didn't know nothing about no knives. I knew nothing. So, um, now I try to analyze how it happened, but at the time I didn't have the tools to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, with your stuff, You've you've been uh, you know you make a lot of different outdoors type knives, but there are a lot of different kinds of tasks that one would do outdoors. Right. And um, you have uh, a lot of knives in production with K bar, and each one um, I think is is made for just a little bit different task. Right. Um, but they're all uh, purpose made, and you know made with a purpose in mind and also with function in mind. Um, but it seems like they also achieve a good um, visual appeal. And that's that's kind of something that I'm studying a little bit myself. I kind of I lean a lot more towards function than I do visual. Um, but I'm trying to learn to balance those two. Um. I never ever thought I was making something of beauty. Um, I was, um, I am still like you. Function is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I probably, I'm, I'm probably the first person to produce black knives. <laughs> or make them popular again or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I'm the first person I know of or can think of that did that. But the reason I did that is because I was 
trying to sell carbon knives during a period when nobody was buying carbon knives. They were all buying stainless. Mm-hmm. So I figured I, I knew the knives had worked, and I knew if somebody didn't use them and kept them and they didn't rust, they'd be fine. And if they used them enough, um, they'd like them well enough that when the coating came off, and all coatings do come off, that they wouldn't mind. They'd put up with it. Yeah. So I went to a 200-hour salt spray graphite-enhanced um, um, uh, parkerizing uh, or phosphating because parker the parker parkerizing is a a patented process and the name is, is trademarked so mm-hmm. it wasn't parkerizing um, and um, uh, then that later uh, turned into paint or uh, epoxy powder coat which is essentially modern paint mm-hmm. and it doesn't really make that much difference. People have been using carbon knives since for a long, long time. If you keep them out of salt water, you don't really have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll get a surface rust or patina on them and blah, 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 blah. But guess what? Who cares? Yeah. Okay. Um, if you wash your outdoor knives every day, you may have to worry about rust. <laughs> but most of us don't. Yeah. And um, so, um, but the aesthetics, which is essentially what you're talking about, trying to balance, I just draw something until it looks good to my eye. Okay. And then try to figure out how to work the balance and one thing or another. And one thing I've found is, is that... uh, because a couple of times manufacturing has gotten in the way of my absolute wants. Mm-hmm. And I was very worried when we went from the slightly thicker steel in the Camillus BK9 to the slightly thinner steel in, um, in the K-bars because they don't have any of this, that particular thickness and the thickness I preferred in stock. So we just varied the edge geometry. Mm-hmm. And the primary grind geometry. Mm-hmm. And you know, it works at least as well as uh, the Camillus one did. And on uh, smaller stuff, it works better because it's got more slice to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the guys here said he used one to take down an eight. Was that or a shack that he used? He, took, he used a shack to take out it down an eight inch oak. <laughs> Not something I recommend, you understand, yeah, all right? You but it was beat a, yourself to death on that, <laughs> right? But that's what he had, and he said, "You can do it." Yeah. So, uh, but it's it it there's a there's an awful lot I've learned in the last thirty years. Mm-hmm. But when I first got going, I've often said I had no business being in the knife business, no whatsoever. And I knew knives, and I knew, you know, I knew knives as a user. I knew what I liked. But my ignorance of everything uh, to do with knives, the manufacturing thereof, I mean, what I knew you could put in an an extremely small space. (laughs) When I first, uh, the first hundred Meshaxes I made, I didn't know about grinding knives. 
but I had run a machine shop for uh, that made mountain climbing equipment for for some years. So I jobbed a place out to a CNC machine shop, and we machined the damn things. Uh-huh. Very poorly, too, I might say. Um, 4140, which is what I was using, is a stringy son of a bitch, and we used a fly cutter, and, and it just, uh, that surface it left behind was horrifying. Hmm. But the knife worked, so who cared? Mm-hmm. The one of the other things I would say um, for modern, you know, production knives, um, there has been a trend uh, for people to take their knives and then put um, what I would consider to be very uncomfortable handles on them. So. An, an example would be they have like a slab of micarta and they put a slab of micarta on either side and maybe kind of round out some of the edges a bit and but really they don't they don't pay attention to at all to the um, the geometry of your hand the anatomy of your hand how your hand works how it functions what happens to your fingers when you close your hand uh, where the strength of the grip is I mean they really don't pay they, they make like a really cool blade shape and then they just blow it all on the handle. I mean, they they make just completely uncomfortable handles. So says the hand surgeon. Right. So yeah, I and have a... And this is, this is, I mean, this is, this is one of my big complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, a lot of knives that have the slab handles and you know, and a lot of people refer to it as tactical. <laughs> and for a while, my definition of a tactical knife was a knife that had an extraordinarily uncomfortable handle. <laughs> um, uh, K-bar is probably uh, uh, 1217. K-bar is probably the most tactical knife huh. in the sense that it's been used tactically for since 1942 by literally millions of American soldiers, and Marines specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's got a lot of rounded edges uh, in the grip. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is it's very comfortable to hold, but it's hard to orient that knife extremely well, which is why there's a little flats at at the front, or at least you can use a little flats at the front that go down to the guard and your thumb can help you to orient the blade. Okay. But the vast majority of, of the, uh, there's a whole school of knife design, the origins of which we will um, leave unmentioned, um, that has a lot of sharp points and stuff on it, on the handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and my whole attitude is from a tactical standpoint, you want the knife to hurt your enemy, not yourself. <laughs> exactly. And you can't use a knife like that for a long time. Um, I, um, I have always felt that a soldier's knife, and mind you, I do not have, um, I do not have the, the chops because uh, I've never been in the military. Mm-hmm. But I have always said that what 
a military knife that, well, what I've always said is basically a soldier or a Marine is an armed camper with an attitude problem. <laughs> and that a knife has to be, because it's not the primary weapon of uh, these days, has to make itself, it has to, it has to make a living being useful. Mm-hmm. And that's opening ration boxes and prying stuff off, prying crates open and this and that and one thing or another. Because it, if, if, for a modern soldier, it is a, at, at best a secondary weapon and primarily a tertiary weapon. And if you count the, the empty rifle with a bayonet on the front, it's a quaternary weapon. Mm-hmm. So it's number four down the list as a general rule in, on the modern battlefield. And the only assist to a kill that I know of for sure during the entire Iraq war by one of my knives was one of my neck knives. <laughs> and the reason is is that the guy uh, had came around a corner in a dark building and um, a terrorist grabbed hold of his uh, grabbed hold of his M4 and he just reached up with uh, his um, primary hand his strong hand and grabbed had the tank knife on his vest and just pulled and just kept going and raked it over the guy's hand hmm. and threw it away and picked it up and um, and made sure the guy didn't uh, wasn't ever going to be a problem again with his rifle with his rifle yeah uh, what's really funny is he wasn't going to leave the knife behind. <laughs> and uh, he and his team were in, a, in a, what he referred to as a very bad neighborhood. And uh, his buddies were saying, leave the knife, leave the knife, leave that damn knife. He's going, no, I'm not leaving here without the knife. The life saved my life. knife saved my life. And I told him, when he told me the story, I said, look, next time, I said, leave the knife. You know somebody who can get another one free. <laughs> Yeah. So getting getting back to the handle um, design and handle geometry, um, your approach is a lot different, and your approach is, is pretty much what I would do. Um, mm. From As far as the anatomy of the hand, you have the swells in the right places. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple little fine things, but I don't know how easy it is to... Even you know, I'm completely ignorant of the manufacturing process, you know, but I'd, I'd say that your handles definitely are a big selling point of those knives to me. Well, I appreciate that. No, and I, I mean, to me, I mean, basically, what I did when I came up with my first design, mm-hmm. handle design, was I took a case, of, an outline of that case. Uh-huh. K-bar case knife mm-hmm. and smeared it with that uh, bake-in-the-oven modeling clay. Okay. Um, and I grabbed it <laughs> and baked it <laughs> and filed off all of the high points. <laughs> and... So I, I know it fits my hand really well. Yeah. I'm very happy that it fits other people's hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
But the second, um, the second knife design, or the second handle design for the small knives, that was done. It was kind of an interesting story behind that. I came up with a very roundy, roundy handle, mm-hmm. even rounder than the, the one that's on there mm-hmm. now. And <laughs> I used to take my designs on paper up to Daryl Ralph's house. And we'd sit in front of his. Daryl's a very good knife designer, and he makes some very pretty knives. Mm-hmm. And he was very, he was, he was taken with a whole tactical school, really big at that point. Okay. So um, we all have our moments of weakness, <laughs> and um, so he kept saying, "It's got to look more tactical on that. It's got to look more tactical on that." Well, I admire Daryl a lot. Mm-hmm. So we changed it around and. Uh, we made we made it pointy here and pointy there and one thing or another. So I had to, and he made up the prototypes for me. I had it down at the shot show, and Bob Dozier, who is another person who I admire greatly, and Bob is a guy who designs using useful, usefully using knives, useful using knives, right? Because he'd done a lot of it, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he also has been known to be somewhat abrupt, and I regard Bob as a friend, and I know he is abrupt. Uh, and when he has something that he doesn't think somebody wants to hear, he makes it very short. And um, he picked up one of the one of the, the prototypes, and he held it in his hand for about two seconds, and he said, "This knife is all back. The handle's all backward." Just set it down and walked away. I was hurt. Hmm. My little my little ego was uh, um, had a hickey on it. I went over and I picked it up and I went. He's right. You know there was no. So I went back to the drawing board, and by that time we'd quit using Daryl. Um, uh, and uh, I went up to Jamoto and I, uh, up, up at K-Bar, sat down, and uh, we took all of the, the good. There were a few, few good parts from that original, mm-hmm. original set of prototypes. And, um, but an awful lot of that knife handle came... Uh, the the cross section uh, part of the cross section came from a Boker knife. Okay. Now that it doesn't look anything like the Boker handle, but but the cross section, um, I realized how important the egg shape is. Yeah. To how comfortable a blade is, yep. it was very emphasized in that knife, and I I picked it, I kept I always picked that thing up. And there were some, some serious problems with it because it was, it was, there was too much of an arc to the handle. Meaning, um, from front to back. It was more back. like, yeah, it was more yeah. like a banana. Yeah. Okay, than it should have been. Uh huh. It wasn't straight on the top. It was snaky looking, and it was, uh, all things considered, it was extremely comfortable, and. And I guess if I wasn't a knife, haven't been a, hadn't been a knife collector all these years, because I've been accumulating knives for 
since I was seven years old, <laughs> or cutting implements since I was seven years old. Um, and I've held hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different knots in my hand and tried to analyze how they would cut and feel, even if I didn't have a chance. Mm-hmm. But you'll note the last few days, the first thing somebody hands me a knife that I haven't had in my hand, I love the, I love the, um, these little conglomerations of, of, of Becker heads because they all bring different knives. They aren't my knives. That's fine. Yeah. You know, I get to play with their knives. Yeah. And they have good taste. Otherwise, they wouldn't be fans of my knives. <laughs> so they bring stuff and I'm like, oh, well, that's neat. Yeah. That feels good. That that edge geometry is really marvelous. That's got really good balance. That camp knife that that Andy Roy built. Yeah. At Fiddleback Forge that that really uh, nice. that one of the guys brought. That knife is, I mean, for its size and weight, it's just a marvelous tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I think if you don't love knives in general, you're going to have trouble making more than one useful knife. Yeah. You know, everybody can, you know, if you're too much in love with what you do, you can't appreciate, you can't love what other people do. And if you don't love what other people do, you're never going to grow. Right. Yeah. The You mentioned the the straight across on the top of the handle. Yeah. Um, you know, I I kind of, um, knowing a little bit about um, some hand anatomy, um, where that sits in your hand, mm-hmm. you know, it, where it sits in your hand and where it wants to come to rest, um, it wants to... The space. I want a picture of how you're holding that knife. Why is that? Because <laughs> I've never, I've never held my hand up and looked at my hand holding a knife uh-huh. in the mirror. Okay. Um, I mean, I, you're, looking, I can, you're talking about anatomy, and I'm looking. Oh yeah. Well, and this is. Um, there's there's a little bit of a, a curve. That I'm right. holding a BK16. Um, that's one of the one of the things that I'm really really studying and really trying to get is is good handle design because I think for useful blade shapes like it's pretty much been done <laughs> you know so one of the reasons I'm interested in that um, book you've got a book on uh, the the best U.S. Military. Book, no it's it's the that's the Cole military history book yeah or military knife. History book. Well, one of the reasons I'm really interested in that is because there's some really good blade designs in there. And then yeah. the, the trick is um, picking the right blade design for the right task, modifying it just a little bit, and then doing the handle. And so one of the things that I really, really pay attention to is the, the handle. And I've got, um, I don't know if you've seen Jim Noka's uh, uh, knife journal. Yes. Uh, well, in the in the issue, I've of, suffered through. <laughs> no, he couldn't. He couldn't be here today, and I know he's he's just dying to be here. But he couldn't be here. But anyway, in the new issue of um, Knife Journal, 
I've got an article that shows the hand anatomy mm. and and shows some stuff. And actually, what I need to do is I need to do a very very specific article just on the anatomy of the hand. Mm-hmm. But um, the reason I show you that is that that there's there's not a flat line there where you're right. You know, and I don't know. It's it's a very subtle thing. Like, but if you take if you take something like this or um, some of the other, I'm holding a, a basically a Kephart copy. If you if you look at some of the other handles that feel you know really good, and I don't know how difficult that is to do in production, but there is a a little bit of a subtle swell on the on the mm-hmm. on the on the back of the handle. But um, well, that's um, thanks to the marvels of. Uh, Laser and water jet cutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can imagine it, and you can express it mathematically, <laughs> you can make it. And it doesn't cost any more. I mean, the lightning holes in the middle of the of almost all my um, tanks have lightning holes, lightning spaces. Okay. And um, partly to save weight, and partly to Give that slight forward forward, forward feel, and um, and in a chopping, uh, if you have a chopper, mm-hmm. you want a lot more forward bias. Uh, that's way too small to do anything yeah. but to baton with. You can't chop with it, mm-hmm. but um, well, you can, but um, it'd be better to train a woodpecker to do the work. We're talking about the BK-16 yeah, right now. which has a four and four and slight, a four and a quarter inch blade. So it just it's just one of those things that uh, what you showed me just now was really interesting because it took me a long time to intuit what you just showed me. Yeah. Well, and 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 basically, um, the with I'm I'm looking at the the handle of the BK16, mm-hmm. and this is for production knives. This is probably as comfortable a handle as I've ever held, and that's why I used this in an expedition. Doc, I mean, if you wouldn't, go-to. if you wouldn't be too tall in heels, I'd kiss you. <laughs> well, anyway, the other thing the other thing I'm looking at. Um, is like you said, it's not a round shape, it's not a flat shape, but looking at the knife from the back of the handle forward, it's got that kind of upside down egg to it, just a little bit. And that, um, again, looking at how your hand looks and and where the curves are. You see, there's a there's a curve mm-hmm. between your index. There's a natural arc at the top of your hand, and there's a natural arc at the bottom. And the, the arc peaks um, towards the index finger on the top, uh, and it it peaks further back um, mm-hmm. on the bottom. You know, so there's there's all kinds of little little things about the hand. That's interesting. That I never it, uh, never thought of that. Yeah, but anyway, that's cool. So that's why I, that's one of the main re- the only reason I bring it up is that's one of the main reasons I like the the Beckers um, for for production knives is. For me, the handle is where it starts. If I pick up a knife and it doesn't have a comfortable handle, 
Who, I don't care. Who wants it? Right. Yeah. I, I'm not going to use the it. Handle, the handle is the foundation of the blade. Mm-hmm. And if the foundation is shaky, it's, yeah. you know, it, it, it ain't going to stand the test. And, you know, I have uh, some, I have a lot of different friends that make knives. But if they don't make a comfortable handle... You don't own very many of those. No. Well, and, and there was there's one particular real good friend that, that makes knives um, that I used for a long time because I liked him so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but then eventually my hand got to the point where it was getting beat up every time I used yeah. the knife, and I was just like, come on. You know, and so I, I, I took a blank from him. And sent him back a handle. <laughs> you probably know this story, but they never did anything with it. So, it, uh, well, one of the one of the one of the things is an awful lot of people are using my car to handles. Yeah, and that's not a problem exactly, but my carta it's not you're not it's not cap you're not cap it is incapable of being injection molded. Yeah, yeah. So that means you got to spend a lot of money on 3D handle yeah. with um, with a CNC router. Uh-huh. I mean, you don't need a milling machine, although a lot of people, I'm sure, do use milling machines. You can do it with a router because it's it's relatively soft material. Mm-hmm. But machine time costs money. Yeah, it's just that simple. I mean, you can't. You can't get away with it from that. Yeah. So if you have an injection mold that your injection molding, and almost everybody injection molds um, some variety of, of um, nylon, whether it's Zytel or Gribery or whatever, mm-hmm. with a 40 to 60% glass content, as long as you keep it away, if, as long as you don't throw it in the fire, Mm-hmm. It's possible to break those, but you really have to work at it. Yeah. It can be done. <laughs> um, but as I'm frequently fond of saying, when you're doing destruction tests on a knife, <laughs> okay, and you bring anything bigger than a five-pound sledgehammer to the test, <laughs> it's all it is is just proving that, yes, if you have a big enough hammer, you can fuck up anything. Yeah. Well, and then uh, because I, I should repeat that and say you can screw up anything, yeah, so that you can edit the fuck out. <laughs> well, I'm, I got a horn. My daughter has a a fascination with this one particular stuffed animal. It's a duck, and uh, she's got all these scenarios where okay. the duck has a grandpa and all this. And so I have this bicycle horn that's got this bass bicycle horn mm-hmm. note to it, and you honk that, and that's to call Ducky's grandpa. <laughs> so that's so that's the story of yeah. people. I'll be calling Ducky's grandpa a bunch. Yeah, <laughs> so you've called him, and uh, but um, so that's the story of where that that honking comes from when somebody swears. It's it's a nod to my grandma, or not my grandma, my uh, daughter. So if you have uh, slab micarta handles, um, uh, and there's certainly nothing wrong with the vast majority of them um, but if you really want comfort you got to 3D them yeah and it's just no 
Yeah, and it's hard to it's hard to talk people into doing that because I think to you know if you try to do it on um, I've seen some very well executed machine made um, 3D handles uh, out of Micarta, and I've seen some extremely extremely poor ones. Yeah, um, and there's some I've seen some examples here at at the thing that I you know I just I don't understand it, but I don't want to say anything type thing, but. Um, the, I, I think if you're if the vast you're, majority of the time, uh-huh. I can pick up a blade, and if the guy's been in the business for a while, I can tell you whether he uses knives or not. Yeah. Now I'm not. Sometimes you have somebody who uses knives a lot and just can't get it worked out. Don't get me wrong. I'm not accusing yeah. every bad handle of being somebody who's never skinned a deer or, or done anything. Right. Because not everybody, I mean, I've been awful lucky, Doc. I mean, that's just, a, I mean, I think back to, to Bob Dozier saying this is all backwards. <laughs> okay, how many people can have Bob Dozier pick up one of your knives and tell you truthfully how you, as a young sprout, um, have screwed up. That's luck. He yeah. happens to work with K-Bar, and so do I. I've been a fan of his since I was, for, for as long as I've seen his knives. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, but he's, I owe him big time. And that's luck. And not everybody has the luck of having a Bob Dozier be your critic. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has had the luck of, you know, I mean, luck has so much to do with it. Buying that seat pack, I bought that survival pack because I've been fascinated with survival crap since I was <laughs> I, almost as long as I owned my first hatchet. Yeah. You know, I've been making little survival kits and this and that within, uh, ever since I was a kid. And doing a lot of kid camping, you know. Uh-huh. So. It's, it's not all luck, though, because a lot of people will never try because they don't want to have that moment where they have the criticism you know, no, that's true, yeah. and that's that's why uh, you know I I tinker around in my garage, and someday I'm going to get like good at it. <laughs> Maybe you know, mm-hmm. but um, you know I have uh, I have no doubt. I mean, you're you're a very um, uh, thoughtful guy, and you have and you're a very observant person. And if you think this is uh, rocket science. Uh, you're wrong. Uh, you're going to do really well on it. Well, thanks. But um, I guess where I was going with that was, I think a lot of people won't even start. They won't even they won't even start the journey because they're like petrified of the failure. And right. And I've got some knives sitting at home that were me testing a concept that I would never ever show anyone because, like. They look so bad. I mean, they feel good in the hand, but they look so horrible, you know. And so that's that. That's that visual. I know exactly what thing. you're talking about. Yeah. I have never been a knife maker. 
Yeah. Okay. I have made some knives. <clears throat> and I just realized, um, actually, we're going through the reference, the Blade reference library. Mm-hmm. And I ran across them a couple days ago, and I'm like, I hope nobody sees these sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm not... I'm not really a knife maker either, but see the difference between like you and somebody else and me is that um, I don't have anyone that will make it for me, <laughs> you know. So I kind of have to do it myself. And so I, in the in the process of fiddling around with different designs and different handle shapes and things, <clears throat> nobody's going to do that for me because yeah. I'm not. Nobody's looking to buy my stuff, you know. So I've kind of have to do it myself. Well, interesting. I mean, what you have going for you, and from a standpoint of a budding knife designer, is you're a long-term user, and you use knives in awkward places, mm. and um, and you rely on them for your life. Yeah. So you know what's important. And you know hand anatomy better than probably any knife designer. Um, well, unless in they're the a hand world. surgeon. How many how many surgeon how many knife or how many hand surgeons are going to be interested in designing knives? Well, I, again, um, other than scalpels. There's a exactly. There's a lot of again. You know, part of this is um, I, I'll have a theory about something about the way it should work. And I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there and I'll try it. And it, it feel, feels good, but it's just not quite right. Yeah. You know, so then you have to go back to the drawing board. And, and what I'm getting to now is um, the, the arcs, when I first started, they were, you know, the arcs on the top of the handle and on the bottom were, like, pretty aggressive, you know, and, and were, like, perfectly fit mm-hmm. into the curved spaces of your hand. Mm-hmm. And it... I, uh, I didn't like the way that felt because it kind of locked my hand into position and I wanted to be I wanted to have a little bit more wiggle room just yeah. enough to to be able to use the knife just in a little bit different grip and things like that whereas it, so the the thing I'm working towards now um, is a little bit more subtlety in like yeah. that that blue knife that was made somewhere you probably don't want me to mention um, that is kind of the latest in the subtlety. You know, if you if you took that handle and compared it to like the first one I did, it's it's the same. The idea is there, but it's a lot more subtle. Right. So yeah, I used to. Journey. I went through the absolute form fit stage at one point. Yeah. And um, I always figured if I got the the heel of the of the grip. To comp- exactly conform to the little finger, uh-huh. that that would really work. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. It pinches it. It pinches the holy living crap out of it. Uh-huh. And um, and and I I I can spot somebody who has who hasn't figured this out, and I. I was enamored of that a lot longer than I should have been. You know, this whole German. <laughs> uh, stubbornness thing is not always uh, a good thing, and have come up to the fact that with that a, a, a swell toward the heel of the of the blade is you need it, you got to have it, 
but it's got to be really subtle. Yeah. Because otherwise, it'll just eat the heck out of your little finger. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, there's a reason why axes um, have handles the way they are. Yeah. One of the most incredibly efficient knife designs I've ever seen uh, was a blade that was made by Murray Carter, who was, um, I guess you'd say, the great guru of, uh, Canadian guru, now American guru of Japanese knife making. Okay. And he has what he calls a forester's knife. And it's an axe handle, which is uh, a very short axe handle with a bowie knife on the front. Oh, cool. And the handle's got an extra, like, two to three inches that is not really necessary. Uh But you can choke up on it, and you can do really fine work with it. Uh And you move that point of balance by moving your hand back to the axe, axe handle part, and you kind of wail with that thing. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a traditional, it's a traditional, um, uh, it's a traditional, um, uh, it's a traditional blade, mm-hmm. and I've always wanted to do one. Um, yeah. But uh, to do a, to injection mold a handle for one knife, yeah, <laughs> okay, it's probably not something. Well, well what you should do, um, what we could do is we could make um, pick your favorite axe handle and pick your favorite blade design. And uh, what we'll do is we'll, we'll put it on a piece of uh, 1095 and carve it, cut it out, and then you shape the. We'll just make the handle out of micarta and you just shape it on the on the. Oh, I, could, I could run. Well, see, I, I don't want to do a one-off. I oh. have a one-off that works really good. Murray Carter made it. Yeah. Okay. I don't need to do that. What I'd love to do is to have a production knife. Yeah. So because I think it, I think it's one of those. I think this is a really cool idea. Things. Yeah. And um, and most of the things I've been successful at designing, whether it's packs or uh, or uh, camp cups or uh, knives or whatever uh, climbing equipment. Has been I want one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Not I want to build something. But I want to build one of those for me. Yeah. And I think if you don't have the passion of your own wants in something, uh-huh. it won't go very far. Yeah. So your knives will go far, Doc. Well, hopefully, <laughs> maybe <Yeah>. someday. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, that's uh, um, you know, we'll probably talk again, I guess. But well, that's I certainly a, hope so. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's probably an episode's worth of uh, discussion and knife design and philosophy and everything with uh, Ethan Becker. And there's there's so much more we could get into. Um, you're, you know, the, I mean, there's, I mean, we could just talk for days and, and never run out of stuff. But uh, the, our our uh, audience might not know um, you're an actual Cordon Blue chef. The real deal. Yes, the real deal. Yeah, and so uh, that's one of the great things about coming to the Becker Gathering is uh, not only do I get to learn about knives and, and uh, 
well, today uh, Chance Sanders gave a little thing on uh, netting, and you know, people will come and bring all these skills. But not also, not only do I get to learn about um, some wilderness skills, but I get to actually learn from a cordon bleu chef. But <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I love, I mean, that's one of the things I love. I mean, there's a lot of skills up on that, up on that hill. Yeah. And a lot of skills, and a lot of people are willing to share those skills. Uh-huh. And Chance, um, Chance, um, Chance knows his, his stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's fun. You know, I'm gonna have to use the horn on that one. Yeah, yeah. So he really does. He's um, uh, he's all right, that guy. Yeah, and he's got a he's got a really neat take on the the uh, survival thing, and that he's focused on where actually most people live, which yeah. is not the yeah. forest. <laughs> right. You know, he, we all he have all this. Them. We all have this dream of if, if we're if if we're in a survival situation, we're in the middle of the Amazon, or we're yeah, uh, in Alaska, <laughs> or far northern Canada, and most of the time, the place you got to worry about is yeah. Living downtown. Well, right, and uh, I think the movie Red Dawn really kind of screwed up people's idea of what survival is. <laughs> I'm talking about like the 1985 one, you yes. know, where the Russians That's come right. and they escape up into the mountains and they live off the land and all that. So yes. I, I call that Red Dawn syndrome. <laughs> yeah, but actually, a place where it actually worked like that was in the Philippines during World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. Where Wendell Furtick took um, decided he really didn't want to be in a Japanese POW camp <laughs> and uh, created a thirty thousand man army. Wow. So um, you can do it, but let's hope we never have to. Exactly. Well, that's that's probably going to be it for this episode, and, and we'll see if we can't get some more done. <laughs> Thanks right. for talking to us. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right, let's go eat. <laughs> okay. <laughs>